Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that you are always with us. And we ask now that you would speak your word to us. That we would hear your word. That we would know your presence. And that your word would bear fruit in our lives. All to your honor and glory. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, elementary kids, if you haven't already, I invite you to head to the back to your class. And as you're being seated, if you would turn with me to Psalm 1, read this morning, Psalm 1, which is page 448 in the Red Bibles under the seats in front of you. Psalm 1, page 448. Verse 1 says this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Blessed is the person who delights in God's word. Law is Bible language for the Bible itself. Blessed is the person who meditates and reads continually God's word. Blessed are we when we read and ponder and study God's Word, the Bible. We will be immensely blessed as we read and study and think about God's Word. So this morning, I want, us to, I want to help us learn to do that well by actually looking at the opposite. Learning to read the Bible well by looking this morning at how not to read the Bible. Reading the Bible is incredibly important, and we should care a lot about doing that as well as we possibly can. So in order to help us with that, as I said, we're going to have fun doing the opposite, which is how not to read the Bible as a help and an encouragement to us how to do it well. So three ways not to read the Bible in order to help us read it well. The first of how not to read the Bible is to read it just as stories to teach us morals. Reading the Bible to learn how to be good little boys and girls. There's a researcher and author named Christian Smith. Uh, he and his team did an in-depth study of religious beliefs and behaviors among American teenagers just a handful of years ago now. And one of his assessments of the religious lives of American teens, teens is a phrase that has now become quite widely used, even if people don't know originally the, the work that it came from. He described much of the religious belief in our country as moralistic, therapeutic deism. Moralistic, it's all about being nice. Do good stuff, don't do bad stuff, and ultimately, that's how you earn God's favor. Therapeutic, it's all about feeling good about yourself. If you feel bad about yourself, read the Bible. It will make you feel better about yourself. And deism is a more technical term, but ultimately what he means by it is that there is a God, but he's not really involved in our lives. Moralistic therapeutic deism. It's all about behavior, it's all about feeling good, and a God who's not really involved in your lives. And so as he did study about what we believe in America, this was his description 
of a lot of it. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. Now, I suggest that part of why this has become, in many ways, the norm is that we often read the Bible in exactly the way I'm talking about. We read the Bible primarily as a lesson on how to be good. Just stories with a moral at the end that teach us how to live. And if we teach the Bible primarily as nice stories to teach kids about how to be good, is it any wonder that they grow up to be little moralistic, therapeutic theists? Thinking that it's all about our behavior, it's all about feeling good, and a God who's not really involved in our lives. Now, of course, there are times in the Bible where there is a moral lesson. Uh, godly living requires godly behavior. Behavior matters. But that is far from the main point, And it is far from how we become right with God. But also, it's very important for us to understand, there is not always a moral at the end of the story. And if we read the Bible primarily just to learn moral lessons on how to be nice to each other, as one person I've heard describe it as finding a nice moral McNugget, if we read the Bible primarily just to find a moral McNugget, we turn the Bible just into a self-help book, of which there are many, and it also leads us, to read, leads us to read selectively. Just pick the parts that work for that. It is somewhat, I would suggest, somewhat easy for us to find a moral McNugget in, say, Noah and the Ark. I would suggest it's a lot harder to find a moral McNugget of what comes next, which is Noah getting drunk lying down naked. Maybe not quite the one that we find the nice moral nugget in. If we're always looking for that moral piece to glean from the Bible, we're actually going to have to skip large parts of it, which just simply don't provide such a moral lesson for us. I'm going to give you an example. We'll have a little fun with this. I actually need someone in the room right now to turn to a part of the Bible and read really loud. You didn't know I was going to do this, but I really mean it. Um, First Chronicles chapter 1, if you're in the, the red Bible, it's page 334. You don't all have to turn there, though you're welcome to. First Chronicles chapter 1, if you're in the red Bible, it's page 334. I'm just going to ask you to start reading. I'm going to interrupt you and ask you to read something as you go. Jay, are you ready? First Chronicles chapter 1. Go ahead, read it nice and loud. Verse 1, just start there, I'll cut you off when you're done. That's a lot of names. I'm getting a little bored. Can you go to chapter 2? <laughs> Start at verse 1, but just chapter 2. All right, more names. I'm bored. Go to chapter 3. <laughs> All right, chapter 4. Chapter 4. Chapter 5. <laughs> Chapter 6. You're doing great. <laughs> Chapter 7. 
chapter 8. All right, you can stop. Yeah, that's right. Thank you. God, in his wisdom, included eight entire chapters of names in his inspired word. Now, I cannot say that this is the most exciting part of the Bible. But if you're only looking for stories with a moral at the end, you actually end up needing to skip large parts of God's inspired word, which simply don't have one. Now, in this case, God is recounting his work in the world, that it took place in real families, in real history, placing God's people in history. But if we're just teaching morals on how to live right, we'll actually need to skip pretty significant portions of Scripture, which just don't provide that. See, the Bible is not just about behavior modification. Now, we do need to take very seriously the biblical call to amend our lives and to more consistently follow Jesus in all things. But if we read the Bible just as a manual on how to live, we really miss the point. See, the Bible is always about communicating the glory of God and understanding His work. How He has lovingly invaded the world that he created, which has gone wrong. About his acts of salvation in the world, entering our world, drawing people to himself, putting right that which has gone wrong. And we read it rightly when we see his work, his glory, his righteousness on display, and when we receive his work and his word. We misread the Bible when we just look for that moral McNugget. But we read it rightly when we see the glory of God and His work in the world. So we don't just read the Bible for a nice moral story. Second, how not to read the Bible is to just take it out of context. Or often just ignore the context. Now, we do this, for example, when we take literally something that was not intended to be literal. So, for example, poetry is not literal. That's not the point. That's not how poetry works. So, for example, I know of a man who does not like to wear shorts, like short pants. He doesn't like to wear shorts because it says in Psalm 147 that, quote, God takes no pleasure in the legs of man. Now, in context, Psalm 147 is indicating that God is not impressed with the foreign armies. He doesn't take delight in the strength of horses, that's the cavalry as it says, nor in the legs of man, that would be the infantry. Rather, God's delight is in his people who trust in him. It has nothing to do with the kind of clothing we wear on the bottom half. But we also need to be careful that we don't take things out of context by just reading one phrase or even a whole sentence without paying attention to the paragraph or the chapter or the book that it's in. If we just read bits and pieces, we often miss the actual message that God is communicating. So, for example, I once saw, I kid you not, I once saw a small heart necklace that was made to come apart. I did not have one of these, but I saw one of these. You'll understand why I said that in a second. This little silver heart necklace 
that would come apart into two halves so that the boyfriend could have a half and the girlfriend could have a half while they were apart. And the two halves together quoted Genesis 31, which said, Come, let us make a covenant together. The Lord keep watch between us while we are apart. So while the boyfriend and the girlfriend are far away from each other, they would remember each other, asking God to keep watch over them. How romantic. You know the context of Genesis 31? Jacob and Laban, who absolutely hated each other and cheated each other, were parting ways. They did not trust each other at all. They didn't like each other. And so they made a covenant to each other saying that even while we're apart and I can't keep my eye on you, I want you to remember that God is watching you. You better not betray me. <laughs> I would suggest that context makes that a rather odd romantic gesture. <laughs> Another famous example, less silly, but I think it just helps us understand scripture better when we see it in context. Another example is the famous phrase that Jesus says in Matthew 18, for where two or three are gathered in my name, I am in their midst. What a beautiful promise that Jesus will be in our midst as we gather in his name. And that's true. But the specific context of what he's talking about here is a very specific kind of coming together. And that is the context of coming to do the hard work of reconciliation between Christians. Now, he certainly promises to be with us no matter what. He says that in a number of places. But here he's specifically saying that when two or three come together to address grievances in godly ways, Jesus himself promises to be in our midst when we do that hard but godly work. While it is absolutely true that Jesus is with us here in this room as we gather for worship, the context of that beautiful promise is that we can trust him when we have to seek reconciliation in his name, that he will be with us. I'll give you one more example that I think when we understand what is the, the, the broader context, I think we see even more beauty in a verse we may already know. One more example. Psalm 46, verse 10 says this. Be still and know that I am God. That's a good verse. You should learn that one. That's a good verse. Now, in a church where I used to work, they had a beautiful, large stained glass window covered the entire front behind the altar. And it was this picture of, as I said, beautiful stained glass picture of this serene mountain landscape with a river running through it. Peaceful, calm, beautiful. And at the bottom, it said, be still and know that I am God. And you sort of couldn't not be still if you looked at it. Now, there is absolutely nothing wrong with that, and it is a very helpful image to understand that verse. But what I would suggest is that the psalm itself is not actually about a serene landscape. I would suggest that the scene depicted in the psalm looks more like this, up on the screen. 
in a moment. <laughs> there you go. That's more what it actually looks like. It's about chaos and war and violence. Listen to most of the psalm. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter, he utters his voice, the earth melts. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the ends of the earth, and he breaks the bow and shatters the spear, and he burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. We're not so much invited to come away in peace and calm and be still with God in this psalm. Rather, the context is that we are encouraged, even in the midst of war and chaos and unrest and uncertainty, to be still and trust in God. That He is working even in the midst of the chaos. Be still, trust, and watch what He will do. When we read the larger context in this passage and in others, when we read that, we avoid some of the potentially silly misunderstandings, but there are also some dangerous ones. We also end up seeing much more the beauty and the power of the message that God actually intends for us. So we don't read the Bible for moral McNuggets. We do our best to read the Bible in context, not out of context. And then third, how not to read the Bible, is by making ourselves the hero. When we identify with an event in the Bible, we are not the hero. That's actually incredibly important to understand. When you read a passage of scripture and you identify, you are not the hero. I am not the hero. God is always the hero. One of the most common examples of this that I have seen, and I see this both, I used to be a children's pastor, um, I see this in children's curriculum all the time, but I see it just as much in books and curriculum designed for adults. And that is with the, the event in the Bible of David and Goliath in 1 Samuel 17. And we make ourselves the hero by identifying ourselves with David and our problems with Goliath. We can overcome our problems just like David overcame Goliath. Just about every lesson on David and Goliath I've ever seen in children's curriculum. But you and I are not David. Our problems are not Goliath. The five stones that David picks up and puts in his bag to sling at Goliath are not our tools against our problems. Now, it is appropriate for us to relate to and learn from David, certainly. But David represents someone. It's just not us. See, David is the anointed king who frees his people from an enemy that they could not overcome on their own. David is God's anointed one who stands in for the rest of God's people and kills an enemy that otherwise would have killed them. David represents someone. 
It's just not us. David in 1 Samuel 17 is a precursor for Jesus himself. Jesus defeats the enemy of sin and death and the devil, fighting for us who could not overcome them on our own. So if you want to find yourself in the story, if you want to find yourself in the story, you and I are the helpless Israelites cowering in the corner, terrified. Helpless and lost and afraid. But our Messiah, Jesus, fights for us and is victorious over our enemy, the devil. So when we read the Bible, we make sure that we do not confuse ourselves as the hero. Because God is always the hero. We don't read the Bible. We don't learn uh, to read the Bible just to make us good little boys and girls. We do our best not to read it out of context. And we remember that there are messages that God himself is communicating and we read it faithfully in context in order to understand the best we can. And we do not make ourselves the hero. But we humbly see our weakness and our helplessness without God. This God who acts on our behalf in Christ. Now I've spent time this morning emphasizing how not to read the Bible. But let that be an encouragement to all of us to read it well. And I know that it sounds hard and it might and we might end up being overly concerned with doing it wrong. And I think that's actually okay. Probably healthy at some at some level because we should be concerned with rightly handling God's word. But let it lead us to deeper study to devoted reading of Scripture, and to faithful worship. Because you and I can read the Bible and encounter the God who inspired it. This book is God's inspired word, and we need to read it, and as one person has said, allow it to read us. And as we encounter God in his word, we remember that it is not just about learning moral lessons on how to behave. It's not just a phrase book that we randomly pick out something that sounds nice. And we certainly remember that we are not the hero. God is displaying to us his work in the world. And he's communicating his truth and his power and his love. And he's recounting for us his immense salvation that he has accomplished for us in Christ. And we read to encounter, to submit to and to come to know better the God who inspired it. Blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, Read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them. That by patience and the comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen.